So everybody here knows that HHR is a huge issue and will continue to be an issue. And we're here to address some of that today. Uh, supporting and taking us through today will be Carly Weeks, who's a health Most of you, I think, will be familiar with Carly. She is a health reporter for the Globe and Mail. Um, and then I think year two now, Tim. So Tim Guest, uh, CEO for Canadian Nurses Association, just approaching year two and just past year one. And then Lee Chapman, who you all know from Health Canada, our CNO. And uh, that's it for me. Uh, Carly, it's all yours. So before we get to a lot of like the real heart of the issue, I wanted Lee, followed by Tim, just to set us up for how we got here, because this is not like, I mean, I recall well before the pandemic, you know, hearing from leaders in nursing, people working in healthcare that we have this, you know, this looming crisis. Uh, we're here, you know, so how did we get here? What really is the context um, that, you know, got us to the situation we're in today, Lee? Okay, well, um, that's a great question, Carly, and a good place to start. I think um, it's very clear that we are where we are currently because of really historic undervaluing of nursing and the work that nurses do. Uh, if we think in, in terms of a, a more contemporary uh, trajectory, you know, we spent a lot of time over 20 years ago, around 20 years ago, in most jurisdictions in Canada, changing the entry requ requirements for nurses. So practical nursing came up to a community college level, um, or ner registered nurses came up to a baccalaureate level and nurse practitioners up to the uh, master's level. Yet we still have a very task-focused fo um the, the way that we have structured nursing work in many contexts is very task-focused, sort of, sort of harkening back to uh, skills checklists uh, from the 80s that uh, we've certainly gotten rid of. We, so we spent a lot of time educating nurses, and then we have nurses working in environments where they're very constrained and are not able to be optimized and do the work that uh, they are actually competent to do. And so I think, you know, if we think of just the last three years of the COVID-19 pandemic, nurses have been uh, redeployed. There's been, you know, forced redeployment. There's been, um, uh, you know, inability to take vacation and to have dedicated time off. And it really has eroded the nursing profession. So it, it's really kind of exacerbated this notion of devaluing the work, the vital work that nurses do. Um, and and I think it's contributed to what what is now great pathology in the profession. Like it is more than burnout. It is moral distress and it is actually making nurses sick. Um, the, the notion of, you know, psychological wellness um, is, is really challenging when nurses are uh, struggling so, so much in the work environment. Thank you for that. Tim, do you agree with that? And, and how, what would you add to that? I, I would agree with it, but I think maybe I'll add a couple of things that are maybe some examples and some specifics. You know, so what we've seen over the last 20 years is a progressive increase in workload and um, changes in expectations of what nurses do. Um, we have seen expansion of uh, the practice of nursing, particularly if, if we think about uh, hospital care. You know, 30 years ago, nurses didn't do IVs. Uh, now they're they're doing every all of that. Uh, nursing is always the catch-all when something doesn't fit equally with someone easily with someone else. Um, so you see that in hospital sectors when uh, largely uh, the rehab team works Monday to Friday from eight to four. So nursing takes over after that. So you, you know that always goes on top of the work that that they're already doing. Um, and and I think the other thing that we've seen is that uh, no disrespect, but we've seen progressive funding issues with governments where um, uh, there's these cyclical cuts that uh, have eroded the um, the capacity uh, of the nursing workforce over the years. Nurses have been saying for 20 years there's a problem, uh, and the, the the pandemic really all it did was pull a bandaid off of what we already knew. It, it worsened the situation, um, but it didn't really cause it. The other thing that I would say is we've also seen a progressive change in societal acceptance of behavior. And, and uh, there has been a growing increase in uh, violence and behavioral issues um, that happen in healthcare settings that I, I believe they happened in the past, but they, they weren't as uh, frequent. Uh, and it, I, I think there's this growing acceptance that it's okay. 
And so um, nurses are much more exposed to violence and uh, and potential harms. There's more nurses that are injured because of those instances now than, than um, first responders. Uh, and so I think the environment that nurses are working is fundamentally different, and, and I would say not for the better. Thank you so much for that. And and it is obviously, you know, it's distressing to hear about all of these different issues. And, and um, you know, I speak to so many different people in healthcare all the time. And, and certainly this has been, I've been doing health reporting for like 16 years. And I think that um, to your point, this has been talked about since then, like this is not a new problem, but certainly I, I you know, a problem that is years in the making is also a complex one to solve. So given all of these layers of challenges, um, how does that complicate our response now? How, you know, we'll get to sort of some of the solution, but I'm just wondering, you know, given the many different challenges that we are facing, what does that then mean for how we respond to this and the challenge, how, like it seems like it makes it that much more difficult to respond. What would you say to that? I, I mean, I would totally agree. I think in many ways we've normalized some of these things. We've accepted these things as normal. Um, you know, uh, it's, for example, nurses work shifts. Um, it's impossible to get daycare for shift workers. Uh, it's impossible to find places to rest. It's impossible for nurses to get adequate, you know, nutrition and breaks um, where they can feel restored. In other industries and in other professions, I think we have um, really, you know, shifted the sort of shifted the balance on on work-life balance or how we, how we manage those things. But in the health professions, we've just normalized that it's a 24-7 operation and that we are kind of the sacrificial lambs in the system. Nurses are those gap fillers. And, and so that requires a massive culture change and a, a real shift in how we're valuing the essential work of nurses. What would you say to that, Tim? Uh, I would agree. You know, I'll give a, a couple of specific things that that I would I would add. Um, I think it will take courage. Um, I think part of the reason that we haven't made the change is is you know the some of the challenges cascade on top of each other. And uh, one, just one specific one, getting rid of mandatory overtime, as an example would make a huge impact on satisfaction of uh, the nursing workforce. But it's a lever that employers, I think, are afraid to let go because um, without that lever, you worry about what you would do. There have been jurisdictions that have eliminated mandatory overtime in the collective agreement. Nova Scotia is one of them. It's still functioning just like the rest. The world didn't end. And so I think it just takes one that will be willing to to make some of those changes and and um, to move forward. I think one of the other one is, you know, we come from a culture that was hierarchical. It was very colonial impacted, um, rules based, and sometimes it's hard to give things up. Nurses tell us they want more control over their scheduling. One of the things that is hugely dissatisfying for them but it's really hard to give up control of that and share that control. Um, you know, one of the things that we hear that um, nurses also want is they want to have more input and more say. Um, and when you see some of those things, um, it makes a difference with um, your retention rates. It makes a difference with recruitment, uh, uh, you know, success. And I, I think it, it, it just takes um, courage. It takes um, uh, a leap of faith. Um, I think it it takes uh, a culture that brings the nurses to the table to have input and to share the decision and and the accountability for putting the decision into action. Um, you know, I think that's what's needed. I want to go with that thread for a second. Um, you know, because I think one of the issues we've seen for a long time is that you know the voice of nursing maybe isn't heard as much as it as it needs to. I mean, the fact that we didn't have a chief nursing officer for you know a decade or so. Um, and I think often, even in the media, you know, we um, we don't hear enough from from nurses. And in some cases, um, you know, that's because nurses aren't quite as empowered to speak uh, publicly. And, and there's more of like a fear of losing, like basically fear of losing their jobs, whereas physicians don't have that same kind of constraint. So I think that that's part of the challenge. Um, I wanted just to go with that comment just on sort of how we need to hear from nurses more. And you know, if if you're each to sort of, and, and you know, you're both in positions of leadership, but, you know, wondering what sort of the message needs to be for people who are making policy, people who are looking at, you know, what do we need to do about recruitment and then retention? Like, what are some of the 
the message is just about including voices of nursing. What what mistakes have we been making? What do we need to do to make sure, you know, there's actually that, that representation to make sure that the voice of nursing is part of those decisions and changes that are being made. Um, Lee, perhaps I'll put that to you first as someone who's, you know, kind of in charge of nursing in Canada. <laughs> Uh, if, if only, <laughs> um, you know, I think that there's part of the challenge is that we hear um, a lot of negative stories of, of nurses in the media. And the difference really is nurses are generally employees and physicians are generally self-employed contractors. So that's a key difference. And, and I think because nurses are employees in most circumstances, they are kind of treated as cogs in the wheel and, and, you know, replaceable, or, um, you know, they can be redeployed uh, to other areas, or if we're short, if, you know, we can bring in agency or travel nurses to sort of plug the holes in the system. But, um, you know, I think we, we need to hear from nurses and we need to really amplify uh, the voices of nurses. And that's certainly a key part of my mandate in understanding, you know, nursing from a pan-Canadian perspective from coast to coast to coast and really bringing those, those stories to bear in nursing policy and health policy and, and, um, but there's lots of opportunities at the at the local level, you know, um, at, at all levels, uh, at the employer level and so on to, to really amplify the voices of nurses. You know, one example, perhaps in a, in a healthcare facility, in a hospital or, or any other healthcare facility is to involve nurses in practice council and governance and, and decision making and and really having a, a container, an opportunity for nurses to um, be part of decision making within the organization. I think that when we when we allow for those opportunities, the the potential of nurses is is really um, unleashed. And uh, I think there's you know there's there's those examples. Uh, you know, when I mentioned the media, um, it's a lot of doom and gloom. You know, there's a lot in the media around um, nurses working in agencies that you know inflated. Uh, rates of pay and so on, and how much this is costing the system, but who can blame nurses? And I think that is the perennial problem is we blame individuals for system issues. And this, the, the system issues are the issues within the system, the healthcare system that need to be remedied. Um, but, but I mean, there's miracles that happen every day in, in healthcare, often at the hands of nurses. We, we don't hear those stories very often. It's very true. Yeah. And I, I do take some of the blame for the doom and gloom. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Um, Tim, what would you say about that? Because you, you, you know, you started talking about sort of the, you know, amplifying the voice, like getting the voice of nursing out there. Um, you know, in, in, what sort of do you mean by that? What are some, and maybe some examples just from your, you know, your your experience, your professional working experience about the importance of that. So uh, we spent a lot of time advocating for the return of the chief uh, nursing officer at, at Health Canada. Uh, you know, some of what we've talked about is needing to have a nursing voice uh, at, at provincial and territorial government levels as well. Uh, there are in many of them, not all. Uh, they're not all at the same level of the decision-making matrix. And, and so, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is that the nursing voice needs to be at a high enough level that they can actually influence government policy decisions. Um, the other thing that we've talked about is that um, organizations need to have senior level nursing um, role or voices and roles at the table. In Ontario, as an example, it's required that hospitals have a chief nursing executive appointed. That is not the case in provinces, in every province and territory across the country. And so there's there's variation. Uh, we we believe that that nursing departments should be led by nurses. Um, and, and there's been lots of uh, conversations we've had with nurses that it matters to them, and it makes a difference with how easy it is for them to transition into practice, as an example, when they're new, when they've got nursing leadership to go to to help them with that, um, that transition. Um, there needs to be more opportunities for nurses at all levels to to participate in, in decision-making. And there's lots of examples across the country where employers have put in nursing advisory councils that, um, that, where, that they really um, encourage nurses to come and participate in decisions and to help them uh, through issues. And I think the ones that are the most um, uh, successful are the ones that they're really meaningfully engaged. The nurses are paid to go. They're not expected to do it on their own time. You know, um, 
that it, you know that the employer really wants them them to participate and and so i think there's lots of good examples uh, of where that's happening um i'll give you another nova scotia example just because i think it's unique is the government there has created a a nursing advisory uh, board that has representation from the union sector from education from regulation from employers across all sectors they come together they work through issues in a very effective way, and they um, advise government on where to spend their nursing. Um, their nursing, uh, they've got a pot of money that they've they've put together for um, supporting the nursing profession in in the province, and that group advises government on where it should be spent. I think it's a really good um, model that could be spread across the country. You know, uh, we hosted the International Council of Nurses Congress in Montreal in last July. And one of the things that several of the other countries told us as, as Canadians, they view us as the pilot, um, uh, people of the world. We pilot all kinds of stuff that they're really glad we do because they implement it. But what they told us is we don't. Um, which they thought was bizarre, that we spend all this money, all this time piloting all these great programs and then do nothing with it. Uh, Tim, you're the master of segues today because I wanted to ask about, you know, what are some of the challenges in terms of, you know, getting some more of these solutions on board? And I promise we will talk about solutions, but, you know, just that this whole idea that, you know, we kind of know some of the things that we could do and some of the changes we can make. Why are we doing them? What are some of the key issues standing in the way? So. Um, Lee, I'll, I'll give Tim a break uh, and, and ask you to comment on that first. I mean, often the challenge is uh, money. Um, and uh, I would say that, you know, we've seen a, an, an historic investment in healthcare this year of over $200 billion. And, you know, really a, a dedicated commitment from the federal, provincial, and territorial health ministers meeting uh, or health ministers to address uh, nursing retention specifically, as well as some of the other workforce challenges uh, that we're facing. So, I mean, I think a challenge and an opportunity is always money. Um, but I, as Tim said, I think it requires courage and leadership and, and really almost a, a willingness to um, pilot, try, try, test and fail initiatives. Um, but I think the, the you know, it, I understand the the uh, focus on recruitment. It's it's sort of a natural um, preoccupation of either healthcare organizations or of provincial and territorial governments because they don't want to close emergency departments. They want to be able to. They don't want to have protracted wait times. They want to keep uh, services. Um, going within their respective healthcare systems, but you know it does require this this shift um, from just sort of filling vacancies to actually looking at how we're redesigning the system, and that requires leadership. We're going to come back to that. That's an excellent point. Um, talking about other barriers and things like that, what comes to mind, um, Tim? I think it's uh, we're in this firefighting, um, you know. It's like being the 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 rat on a wheel, where uh, all the system is doing is trying to put out fires, and and I think it really creates a, a challenge. Individuals within the system to be able to focus on some of these other important issues. Um, you know, it, I worked in the system for most of my career, and and um, all it takes is one call from an MLA, and your whole day is switched, right? Um, and and so I think we we react to to issues sometimes that that really take us away from the work that that we should be doing, um, and and so, but it, I agree with with um, Lee. It, it's focus. We we need to to um, measure the things that work, and then we need to actually roll them out and ex and expand them and um, and have more people doing them. You know, it you know, often um, we we beat each other up. And one of the things that Minister Holland said when he spoke to uh, the physicians at a, a meeting earlier in the year was that we need to be more transparent in the system and we need to tell the public when we fail and why, learn from it, and it needs and it needs to be okay for something not to work. Um, and then you try something else to fix it. And I, I think as a as there's a culture in the system that we're not we're afraid to be that open. Um, which I think has prevented us from solving some of these issues. 
because you know there's many ministers have been burnt in effigy when something doesn't work right um and and i i think we need to change the culture uh in order to move forward i think that's an excellent point and uh, yeah certainly it it can often be difficult um as someone who's trying to get answers from you know health organizations and and leaders it, it can often be difficult to get some of that information and i think that there is there's a yeah, real tendency toward um you know being like wanting to not let that information out or really being defensive about it, afraid of speaking about mistakes and, and or potentially being called out for something that went wrong. So I, I think that's a really great point. Um, I wanted to just circle back to something Lee was mentioning with regard to, you know, recruitment and retention. And, you know, in the past couple of years, you know, we've seen so many different, you know, ministers from around the country and, and, organizations speak about the importance of recruitment. Um, you know, we're going to get more nurses here. We're going to get them working. We're going to get new grads. Um, but at the same time, you know, this whole idea of what kind of system are they walking into and are they still going to be there in a couple of years when they realize the realities of what's going on in the organization they're working for. Um, so when we look at the idea of, you know, those, you know, recruitment and retention challenges, um, what would you say you know are sort of some of the key issues we need to be thinking about particularly around you know innovative solutions that we can scale up to retain nurses i mean there's lots that's why um you know i would say since i've been in the role um now i think about 15 months or so um uh, there's been calls for sort of like a national nursing strategy. Well, the the strategy is really in the focus on retention. So, you know, we've convened a advisory group and then held this large retention forum in the spring, in the summer, I guess, in June, and are just in the final stages of developing nursing retention toolkit. So it contains all those you know, juicy bits of examples of where these wonderful things have been occurring across the country in support of nursing retention. So some of the examples that I like to provide are um, in Manitoba, for example, there's a provincial float pool. And I think this is really innovative. About 70 out of the 115 nurses that they have within this provincial float pool came from travel nursing or agency. They're now within the public system. Um, and they can work, you know, in downtown Winnipeg, but they can also go work two hours outside of Winnipeg, have their accommodation and travel compensated. They work for a, a set period of time. They find it enriches their practice. It enriches the practice of their colleagues. And then they can go back to their sort of home base all within the public system. So nurses are able to get that flexibility within the public system. And this is a model that I know other jurisdictions, uh, for example, in the territories and other jurisdictions are trying to, trying to emulate. Um, I think the Provincial Leadership Council model um, that occurs in many jurisdictions is, is very promising. Um, it provides a forum for some of that decision-making for, for that involvement. Nurses are very strong advocates, whether it's for their patient at the point of care, for their colleagues, for themselves, or for the health system. And so I think we, we can harness that energy and harness that advocacy potential. Um, I think I, I mentioned the example of daycare. There's some 24-7 um, daycare facilities that are popping up in other jurisdictions, housing uh, for, for nurses. Um, like these are basic things that I think we have um, accepted as normal in other industries or in other professions, but we don't think of them in healthcare. Um, it, you know, dedicated rest space, free parking. These are not really, it's not... Um, that innovative, but I think these are things that we haven't even considered, you know, um, transit subsidies, things like that, that, that nurses need. Um, and, and certainly, you know, to Tim's point around the violence, uh, bullying and harassment, uh, and racism in healthcare, uh, ensuring that there, there are zero tolerance policies and, and the consequences as well, uh, when these things occur so that nurses feel safe in the work environment. Again, basic things, but uh, things that we we haven't had in the nursing profession for some time. And I, I wonder if, you know, we, we spoke about undervaluing of nurses and, and it feels as though, you know, from so many stories I've heard that nurses have just been kind of expected to just carry that load. That's just what they do. And so when, you know, and, and other health professionals as well, just kind of like, you know, shut up and care for patients. Um, but then as time goes on, you know, we've started to see that there's only so much a person can can carry. And that's when you start to see, I mean, people still 
um, you know, your hospitals are still largely open, people are still largely getting cared for, but the story of what's actually going on inside, you know, it's clear that the quality of care starts to suffer at a certain point, right? I was speaking to some um, people working in hospitals this week who are just very worried about, you know, the ability to actually provide the, the appropriate level of care for people under the, you know, the, the strain that they're facing. Um, Tim, I was hoping you could add your perspective to that as well. Sort of this, you know, recruitment and retention, um, you know, the, both issues that we're facing. But, you know, what I hear is that retention is really where we need to be focusing a lot of our efforts before we can think about recruitment. We need to really get retention right. So what does that look like from your perspective? Yeah, we, uh, we've been advocating for to government for probably... 18 or, or 20 months uh, now where we've really said that the solution to get ourselves out of the situation we're in needs to be multifocal. Um, it, it, and it, and we, we said that it needs to start with retention, that we have to maintain the workforce we have, particularly um, as uh, the numbers of nurses that have self-identified as wanting to leave the profession, um, exhibiting uh, symptoms of burnout, uh, deteriorating mental health conditions. The, the the incidence of that across the the workforce has just exploded, um, and so we need to do everything we possibly can to support nurses and and keep them, uh, because you know I think if if we look at uh, it replacing the gap with uh, increasing domestic supply and uh, international recruitment, it'll take us a decade uh, to to fill that gap. Um, and so some of what we've talked about is you need to focus on the work environment. Uh, nurses are telling us the work environment is the predominant thing that's pushing them out. And so it's it's things like I've, I've already commented about scheduling uh, mechanisms. It's about dealing with uh, with violence and and uh, those harms. It's about uh, scheduling um, and uh, giving uh, nurses more uh, ability to influence uh, their work environment. It's about decreasing the amount of man of overtime that they're they're working um you know some of what what nurses have told us is that they they go to work and, and they don't know if they're going to get to go home um you know it, I, i've heard from nurses that have told me that they worked 24 hours and they they nearly got in a head-on collision on the way home because they were too tired to drive because they didn't have any options of how they could get home um you know we hear from nurses that they would like to have more supports to be able to advance their education to give them options. Uh, and particularly, we hear that from, from uh, nurses from uh, underrepresented groups that find it very difficult to, to grow their careers in the health system. And, and Lee mentioned uh, the issue about racism. We know that it's, that it's a factor. And, and I think it's, it's all of those things. Mental health support is another one that nurses have told us that's a fundamental issue for them that that uh, they have inadequate supports to help them through some of the critical issues that they have dealt with and some of the things they've experienced over the last uh, three years. Um, and another one is that nurses have to prove uh, the source of injury if they've had a PTSD injury at work. First responders don't. You know, why is there a difference? Um, you know, some of those things are, are some of the things that I think need to be addressed in order to to um, solve this issue. I mean, there's so many basic things, really. I mean, for sort of lack of a better word, but so many fundamental things that are just, you know, sort of taken for granted. Um, you know, on, on the issue of, you know, like racism and, you know, there's so many different aspects to that. But, you know, the federal government has has promised that, you know, or basically told uh, provinces and territories they need to do a better job of collecting data to try and figure out, you know, how many nurses are working in a certain area? What what um, what regions are they in? Basically to identify where the gaps are. Right. And, and part of that is also um, trying to collect some of that race based data to try and, you know, get an understanding of who is not being represented and where and, and, and really trying to figure out where some of those challenges are. And I'm just wondering if, you know, maybe each of you can provide a thought on, you know, where or how that the, this data strategy can can try to help out from a nursing perspective. You know, what kind of differences that could make? I realize it's probably, you know, some time away from being reality. But what do you guys think that could mean for, for nursing? I mean, the data piece is, is really complex, and that was um, part of the accountability around the funding uh, transfer this year, uh, So, or the funding agreement in principle this year. And um, I think that, you know, it's the, the lack of comprehensive health workforce planning data has 
impeded our ability to do forecasting and that sort of supply and demand uh, projections of, you know, how many nurses do we need? How many are we short? We talk about a nursing shortage within Canada. Um, and, you know, some of the metrics for that are our vacancy rates, but we don't really have a good sense. We have almost half a million nurses in Canada. We don't have a good sense of how many nurses we need. And this is in the context of a global nursing shortage. And, um, and so the data piece is really critical and I think it will help. But, you know, when it comes to you know, the race-based data, we need to know that um, the diversity in our, in for, of people in Canada is reflected in our nursing workforce or, or not. And we, we need, we don't have that data. Um, we certainly know that uh, there is a lot of, you know, systemic racism in healthcare, but I think the data would help us uh, develop interventions and, and understand where the interventions are. Like healthcare in Canada is really a, such a, a Canadian value that we take so much pride in. And when it's under threat as it is right now, um, in terms of the crisis that we're facing, um, the impact is often, you know, violence and aggression, uh, often, you know, at the point of care at the front line. So nurses are directly impacted. But the data, the data piece is critical for our workforce planning. And, and I think that's why it has been a major priority of this government. Tim. Uh, I, I guess the, a couple of things that I'd, I'd comment. I, I think that, um, uh, you know, we, we saw a shift in in federal provincial territorial collaboration i think over the last year you know back in november when the the health ministers all met in vancouver you know they're all in the room they're working together and the premiers scuttled the whole thing with a with a, a an announcement in the media uh, unbeknownst to the ministers it was a really interesting thing to be there to watch um, that uh, they were planning a joint uh, press conference to talk about the things that they got. Needless to say, that didn't happen. Um, and then Charlottetown was a complete shift where I think they came out of it with um, some collaborative uh, uh, things that they've agreed to, to work together on. The, the bilaterals, as an example, just uh, the federal and provincial governments that have been able to negotiate the bilaterals was a huge step forward. The provinces being willing to actually be accountable for for those do dollars was a total different change in the conversation that we had saw. Um, now, the interesting thing is BC is the only one that's actually got an agreement yet. The rest of them are still sitting in limbo. So we're, we're anxiously waiting to see what happens with them. Um, the other thing that I would say is that... Um, you know, the, we applauded the federal government for announcing the money for the Center of Excellence for Health Human Resource Data. But the one thing that we keep talking about that the provinces and territories we have not got any traction on is actively agreeing that there needs to be a pan-Canadian HHR plan that it's crickets. You know, that's the one piece that we keep uh, asking for that uh, we're, we're not getting anywhere that I believe really needs to happen. We know how many nurses there are, we have no idea what they're doing. Um, you know, so it, that's part of the issue, right? So you can say, yeah, there's 466,000 uh, nurses that are uh, registered or regulated in the country in order to work. But we have no idea how many of them are actually working, what they're actually doing, what percentage of, of a, of a full-time equivalent they're doing. We don't know any of that. Yeah, that, obviously that's a huge, huge um, gap you know, talking about the this pan Canadian this idea of a pan Canadian strategy. I mean, why why do you think there it hasn't gotten the traction that you know it it likely should based on you know, the, the urgency of the issue? Uh, to, to be honest, I don't know. I, you know, I you know I think you got to start somewhere, and 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 for government, I think it's probably been a big step in order for them to make the decision to create um, the. Uh, infrastructure to to have the data and and so i'm hoping that maybe the pan-canadian uh plan is is kind of in the future and, and is being talked about i'm not going to put lee on the spot to, to find out if that's the case uh but you know i guess they needed to start somewhere and 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 they've at least moved and so it's not all bad but um you know the reality of it is australia um has a, a mechanism to be able to do planning you know they've kind of left it behind a little bit. And so I think it was effective. So there's good examples in the world where governments are, are doing, uh, I think, better HHR planning than we we are, that we could learn from. Um, and so I, I hope that it's something that's on the horizon. Thank you so much for that. 
you know, one thing we haven't touched on yet, but I would be eager to get um, your thoughts, both of you, is basically on the issue of of recruitment. You know, we've been hearing, um, you know, for instance, a lot of, of attention paid to the importance of um, recruiting internationally educated nurses, making it easier for those nurses to work here. And I, I mean, tying to that issue, I wanted just to see if you could speak about um, ethical recruitment and, and you know, how how that looks, because it's, it's great to recruit and we've, you know, obviously we need to <laughs> focus on retention, but re recruitment is sort of part of that. So I guess they, hopefully we get to a point where, you know, the working conditions are better and you're recruiting people into a system that's working. Um, but, you know, there's issues around ethical recruitment. So what do we need to be thinking about and and what should, you know, sort of policymakers and leaders be considering? Um, Lee? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I think the challenge is that a lot of the focus has been on recruiting internationally. And uh, certainly our priority from a federal perspective is on accelerating the pathway towards integration uh, for internationally educated nurses who choose to come and work in Canada. Um, and that's different, very different from direct targeted recruitment uh, that is certainly happening at, at some of the uh, provincial or territorial level or, and um, uh, with employers directly, but our focus is really on those who are coming here, you know, ensuring that it's not a years long expensive process towards licensure and integration, because many of them, you know, the settlement process is so difficult when you're immigrating to a new country. And uh, we need them working in healthcare as soon as possible, um, you know, in ensuring that they're safe and competent to practice, uh, but really trying to accelerate their integration. So, um, and and certainly our, our focus from a federal perspective is also ensuring that, um, you know, we have a, a Canadian lens to uh, ethical recruitment, that we also have a sufficient domestic supply uh, within Canada, and that we are you know, we're a rich nation that we are producing enough nurses to to sustain our healthcare system and not um, taking from uh, depleting other other um, countries' health human resources. Certainly, yeah, that's really important. Uh, Tim, what would you say to that question? Um, you know, I think a, a couple of comments. You know, we did advocate early on uh, in the. You know, actually, we've been advocating for a, a few years now on the need to improve the process for licensure of internationally educated nurses in the country. Um, it, it was a very difficult process. It took years for some of them, cost them thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, it, it was, and it's, it's not perfect. There's been huge improvement, uh, I have to say, um, uh, on the issue of licensure of internationally educated nurses. There needs to be more uh, focus on, like Lee said, integrating, integrating them successfully into the Canadian workforce. Um, we hear from them that that it's really challenging for them to adjust to working in the Canadian context without supports. Uh, you know, you could imagine if you are the only person that looks like they do thrown into a, a rural community where there's no one else that has any understanding of their culture um, uh, and, and, and you want them to thrive. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, we need to do the same thing for our new graduates, however, um, domestic graduates about transitioning them successfully into the workforce. Um, I would say that um, we um, very much support nurses from around the world who want to choose to relocate to Canada to immigrate. We do not believe that we should be uh, in the way of that and putting any barriers that prevent anyone from wanting to immigrate to the country there. We do, however, think it is completely unethical for a country like Canada to be going to these countries actively recruiting. Um, there, The top six Inter or countries recruiting internationally are all, all OECD countries. Canada is one of them. We are in the top seven uh, countries that are recruiting internationally in the world right now. We have 11.1 nurses per thousand population recruiting from sub-Saharan Africa that has one. It doesn't make any sense. India's got less than two nurses per thousand population. We're recruiting from India. Um, uh, Philippines has got less than five nurses per thousand population, and we're recruiting heavily from the Philippines. Um, you know, there, there, we ha we have to really look at what it is that we're doing to the domestic populations of those countries when we're actively recruiting a, a scarce health resource from them. 
I think that, yeah, that's really well said. And I mean, I've seen, I think in recent years, examples of provinces sort of using their international recruitment as sort of a, like a boasting tactic, like see how well we're doing, like we're going to all these countries and trying to bring nurses here. Um, and we fodder for a good story, perhaps. So we'll connect later on that. Um, on the issue of you know, new graduates, I'm, I'm interested, and I, I know that um, you may not sort of have the number of applications at the ready, but I'm just wondering your sense of, um, and, and Tim, this might be, I, like Lee, I don't know if you'd be able to answer this as, as well, but just from conversations you're having with nurses or people who are working, um, are there still, like, are people getting scared off of the profession? You know, or, or is this, you know, I think part of the fear of the focus on how bad things are, are is that we're going to, uh, people are no longer going to want to get into this as a profession. And I'm wondering if, if uh, you know, either of you are seeing that manifest itself in reality. You know, early in the pandemic, um, when everyone was out banging their pots and pans on their patios, nursing programs across the country were oversubscribed. There was huge wait lists. Um, uh, there was a huge demand for from individuals wanting to get into nursing programs. I haven't heard specific statistics, but I can tell you that I, I, I was in Edmonton um, uh, in the fall, and one of the university programs in Edmonton did not fill all their seats. A huge shift. Um, and so there, it has had an impact. And I think that's, some of that is the negativity that's, that's out in the, in the public. I think it was important for the public to, to hear nurses' stories about what their environment is like, but I think it's time now for us to shift that message and we need to start talking to the future and, and we need to see actual, um, uh, Im improvements to solve some of those issues uh, and, and move on because I actually think it is having an impact on individuals wanting to choose uh, nursing as a profession. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, my, my sister works as a nurse and uh, so I'm, I may be biased on the subject as well, but you know, she, you know, her group of colleagues are some of the most fantastic people. And it sounds like they have this great fun time at work. So as much as we focus on things that have gone wrong or, you know, nurses, yeah, working at a private agency, how dare they, nurses who are, you know, being bullied at work, important to shine a light on that. The the things that are actually going right in healthcare, you know, we don't speak necessarily enough about. Um, Lee, I would love your thoughts on that, on that as well. Just sort of this, this concern perhaps about the future generations. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, you know, when I came into the role uh, just over a year ago, I was hearing about four to eight applicants for every nursing education seat in the southern provinces and a completely inadequate supply in the territories as well as in rural and remote areas. And now I'm starting to, this fall, I've been starting to hear about nursing education programs across the country that haven't been able to fill seats. And there's a lot of political pressure to increase seats uh, without actually considering how we can ensure quality education, whether we have sufficient faculty resources, uh, clinical placements, and so on. And when the service side of healthcare, like the healthcare delivery is constrained, so too is the learning environment, because that's really the practice environment in which nurses learn. Um, so retention really starts in nursing education programs, and uh, we're seeing attrition also, not just inability to fill seats, but also attrition from nursing education programs. So we really need to ensure, you know, it's very hard in a, in a strained system to have nurses as supernumeraries, as learners, right, in this dedicated time and space for learning. Uh, but that's absolutely what we must do. And I think that, um, you know, I firmly believe nursing is a wonderful profession. And I'm so glad to hear your sister is a nurse, Carly. And, uh, and that that's the, you know, the joy in the profession, there's so many things you can do in the nursing profession, I talked about it being, you know, healthcare being kind of a Canadian value that we we kind of uphold. So we need to think of nursing as a profession of choice in in supporting and sustaining our publicly funded system. But that requires a shift in focus on on retention, and really valuing the work that nurses do. Thank you so much for that. And we've talked about so many interesting things. We have uh, 13, 12 minutes left. Um, so I wanted to see um, if there are questions from the audience here, questions online. Um, if not, I still have plenty more questions, but I thought I'd give, to, I'd give everyone here a chance. Um, so if there's any questions in the audience, feel free to raise your hand and I can repeat the question for the audience online. We'll go to online questions as well if there are any. Okay, we have one question in the room. Two, we'll start here, yep. The comment is there's an opportunity to use um, international nurses coming to Canada on fellowships. So not 
sort of you know poaching, but just really leveraging an opportunity to use the experts. I don't know if any either you want to comment on that. So you know, I think we we spend a lot of time telling learners, whether it's new graduates, students. Um, or internationally educated nurses, what they don't know. And, and in th I think you've really shifted our focus. And, and I think that's a necessary shift to think about what we can gain uh, from learning from our, our colleagues from around the world and as well as our new, uh, new learners and new graduates because there's so much to be gleaned from, from your and their expertise. There is a lot of questions about education um, and um, a lot of concerns about workload and continuing education not really kind of meshing. Um, do you have any comments on how people who want to do get involved in continuing education basically can? Uh, I guess, you know, the first comment I would have is access to resources in order to be able to do continuing education. Uh, that's one of the biggest barriers that we hear from nurses is, uh, you know, there's a real lack of access to um, sufficient grants and bursaries and, and funding opportunities to uh, help them support uh, going back and continuing their, their education, particularly when you're, you're looking at a workforce that is 98% female, um, you know, it, it impacts completely the the home environment of, of that that individual is learning from, particularly if they're a, a single mother that's trying to to raise a family on one income, and and so I think there there needs to be more uh, flexibility for um, uh, nurses to be able to advance their education, more funding opportunities for them to be able to access, uh, because the reality of it is, uh, as uh, Lee has said. Uh, you know, we're losing faculty in, um, in nursing programs and uh, you need to get those experienced nurses from somewhere. And if you don't support them to advance their education, um, you know, it's like the chicken and the egg. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the things that nurses have told us is is one of their fundamentals uh, in order to keep them in the workforce is, is better um, access to uh, professional development. For the people who are currently working to train People that are coming in, you know, take on students and and sort of continue that uh, like a you know great tradition in healthcare. Um, any quick thoughts on that? Uh, thank you for bringing that up because it, that is a, a specific item that we at the Canadian Nurses Association have been advocating for government to to add additional resources to it. And one of the specific things that we've said is that there are nurses at the back end of their careers that don't want to work full time. They want to contribute. They believe they have something to offer. Uh, students that are that are uh, coming into the system, that what we have said is because the workforce is too taxed, they're running short, the workloads are high. If if um, government supported employers to be able to actually have individuals in their workforce that their focus was doing part time transitional support. Uh, looking after students, working with students, mentoring, that that's their sole role. We believe there are nurses that would choose not to retire, that would stay in the workforce and particularly do that. Uh, the challenge is that employers don't have the funding in order to create those roles and, and that there needs to be an actual commitment to um, to supporting it, um, you know, we've we've often said when we've uh, talked to government about the need for the investment in the educational system, it needs to be about uh, increasing seats, increasing um, things like infrastructure and nursing programs. It's about increasing faculty, ongoing permanent funding, not one-year grants that that um, uh, you know. The, the faculty have a hard time even recruiting the person to teach in that in the in the time frame they've got the money. Uh, they, there needs to be a change in how that that happens. But there also needs to be investment in the clinical setting that does exactly that, puts resources in place for um, individuals that uh, might have left the workforce, stayed, uh, that have huge experiences to contribute. Uh, it's a really good example that uh, we believe that would make a difference. Thank you. Lee, what would you add to that? Just just a quick comment that I, I think, as Tim described, that these late career in initiatives are really, um, really fruitful. And, you know, they've been implemented 
um, at, you know, the Ottawa Hospital is doing something, St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, and it's enriching for the late career nurse as well as for the new graduate. Sometimes the late career nurse doesn't have the answers, but there are certainly resources. And I think in COVID, we saw a record number of nurses coming back to practice to help with vaccine efforts and so on. We need their expertise. Um, but I will say as well, um, we funded federally the Kazan Residency Program, which is really to support preceptor development. And again, to to, um, to support that capacity need for, you know, nurses to, to be preceptors and perhaps preceptors who haven't precepted before, uh, because preceptor burnout is, is very real, um, particularly with the workforce challenges that we're facing. Still a lot of talk about salaries and how that, what role salaries play in retention. Um, budgets are tend to be typically used by hospitals, so that they're using nursing salaries, which in effect deals with uh, full-time part you know full-time permanent roles for nursing so what role can salaries play well <laughs> i'm getting the look so i'm assuming it, that it's me who's gonna uh, so you know th this has actually been uh, one of the things that uh, we we surveyed nurses uh, a year ago and um what we were trying to get a sense from them were what were their policy priorities for our advocacy work. And one of the things they told us was equity of pay was a, a huge issue. Uh, nurses across sectors uh, don't all have uh, equity of income. The long-term care sector for many, many years was way below hospitals. Community was below hospitals. There was gaps between what um, uh, faculty and nursing programs were making compared to nurses that were working in unionized hospital settings. Uh, and it, it created all kinds uh, of challenges. Um, and, and we continue to hear that those issues uh, remain. Um, we haven't seen um, the um, uh, nursing salary increases across the country that have been probably as equitable as what we've seen in some first responder collective agreements, particularly police. Uh, in some uh, municipal jurisdictions, they've had double-digit increases. We've, we've not seen those uh, sorts of uh, increases from a, a nursing perspective. Quebec, as an example, uh, is behind most of the country in, in their um, nursing salaries. And, uh, and well, we're, we can see in the media what's kind of happening there. Uh, and so it's, it's a, a, an ongoing situation that um, I, I think is a, it's a real issue. It's, it's one that matters to nurses. They've told us that uh, in some of our surveys. Uh, I, I think you'd have to have a conversation with Linda Salas at, at uh, CFNU to, to really get a sense of, of what the issue is. But, um, you, you know, it's, it's one that nurses are talking about for sure. It's mm -hmm. about respect. Yeah, I mean, I would I would echo uh, Tim's comments that it really is fundamentally about respect. I think the exponential rise in travel and agency nurses, um, you know, shows that we we actually can pay uh, nurses. Um, and if we shift that focus to to valuing nurses who are in the public system, uh, I think it would really go a long way. It, it really is about valuing the vital work that nurses do and and respect uh, for the nursing profession. Um, and I, I think part of that is compensation, but also part of that is optimizing the work environment. Thank you so much for that. And thank, thank you all.